This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it is a real privilege to be sitting here with Ian Murray. Uh, We're sitting here in the offices of the Banner of Truth Trust in Edinburgh. And uh, how long have the offices been here, Ian? Since 1971. As long as my life. The building was built in 1830. Ah, Long way back. Excellent. Now, you yourself were involved in the uh, inception of the Banner of Truth Trust, Mm -hmm. and you have been something of a shepherd for the church internationally. If someone in our time has heard the name of Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Watson, Thomas Manton, it is very significantly and possibly because of the work that the Banner of Truth has done in making their works available to our generation. Now, uh, you, were, you were involved in the inception. In fact, it was, I believe you wrote in the second volume of uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones's uh, biography that you had a conversation with Jack Cullum, the, con- the conclusion of which was the, the beginning of the Banner of Truth Trust. Mm-hmm. Do, would you tell us a little about uh, the beginnings of the trust yourself? I'll try to do that briefly, <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Jack Cullum was a businessman who had prospered in his business, a religious background, but no real spiritual experience and became a real Christian in his maybe he was coming up to 40 he was on his way to New York happened to sit on a table where there were Christians from Jerusalem and they witnessed to him about the Lord Jesus Christ and it was God's time to open his heart and mind and he was became a real Christian visited Jerusalem met these friends Came back to London, um, went to Highgate Methodist Church where Joe Blinker was a pastor, a man who I knew somewhat, greatly admired. And one of the reasons I admired him was that um, most pastors like to hold on to visitors like Jack Cullum, but he he seemed to have had the the impression that God was going to use the man. Hmm. So he told him he should go to Westminster Chapel and sit under Dr. Lloyd-Jones. It was a remarkable thing for Joe Blinko to do. And so Jack Cullen was drinking in everything he could. And when he heard that there were sort of church history addresses on Wednesday night, he wanted to come there too. So I noticed him. I had just arrived there in 1956. I don't know what to leave out. But uh, (laughs) I have to go back a bit. Sure, sure. I was brought up in the English Presbyterian Church. I was received as a candidate for the ministry in that church. But when I went, after I'd been through national service and Durham University, I came to the conclusion that the light was really going out in that denomination. Mm. Sadly, it was. church in which I was brought up uh, had a membership of about a 1,000 people. Today, it's shut. Not a door is open. Just died. Mm. And it's a picture of many, many churches. So... I came to the conclusion that had happened because of unbelief in Scripture. And I wanted, to, I wanted to study the Scriptures believingly. So I had to give up going to the Presbyterian Theological College. I didn't know what to do uh, in its place. Um, a friend heard of a minister in Oxford who could, could use an assistant. I wasn't, I wasn't in preparation really then. So I went to Oxford to help Sidney Norton who was a gracious, Christian, believing man, and a very prayerful man. 
before I, his church was very small. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who I'd met once or twice before then, said to me, well, you're going to Oxford, you'll be surrounded with history. You should write, study the history of the English reformers, the martyrs who died at Oxford and other places, what they believed, why they were Calvinists and so on. <clears throat> so I started to do this. After a year, I had written a little and sent it to him just for his interest. But simultaneously at that time, uh, we'd been living, we'd got married a year before, we'd, we'd lived on our own income. The church that I was helping very kindly provided accommodation for us that was delightful, but they couldn't pay any salary, so we lived on our income, and it had run out by the summer of 1956. So Dr. Lloyd-Jones said to me, come to Westminster and you can assist me. As I've often said to friends, he really meant, we'll assist you. He did not need any assistant. He, did, he wasn't used to an assistant. He'd never had an assistant. He, he, uh, he didn't believe in much organization. Anyway, to my amazement, we went to Westminster Chapel. So at first he said to me, well, you can take scripture teaching on Wednesday night. There had been a meeting on Wednesday night. So I thought that's what I'd be doing. But then, uh, before I went there, he had second thoughts, and so thankfully he did. <laughs> it would have been absurd. What was I, 25, 26 years old? And here was he, at his peak of his prime, preaching every Friday night as well as Sunday. Scripture, more scripture. What would I have done on a Wednesday night? Well, he didn't say anything about that. He just said to me, I think you should teach church history on Wednesday night. I was a beginner in church history. Hey, you can do it, he said. And Lloyd-Jones had many gifts, but one was, <laughs> he actually, he had some capacity to make people think they could do things when, humanly speaking, they certainly couldn't. <laughs> I've, I saw, I've seen him doing that, and I suppose that God's hand is in it, but that's what happened with me. <laughs> so I got plunged into church history once a week on Wednesday night. And after a few weeks, I had covered... Oh, 15th centuries or something till the Reformation. Then I, <laughs> then I was on. Sorry. Well, when I got into the Reformation, the advantage of being a beginner was it was all new to me, and I thought it was marvelous. I, you know, I, things I'd never known, and I had all the yeah. I, God was kindly working. Well, Jack Cullum turned up at these meetings. I couldn't miss him. He was about six foot four. Sat and listened week by week. And then at the end of one session, he said, could we talk sometime? So we went for a walk on Hampstead Heath. And he said to me, this is, this is my question, he said. These are wonderful things that happened in the 16th century. Why is it that all Christians don't know about them? Mm. Why has that happened? I explained to him our own experience that books that tell the story were hard to find. Many of them were on the second-hand market. Many of them had been pulped years before. The interest had died. And now, through the preaching of Lloyd-Jones and through other means, there was a reawakened reawaken concern. We had started a little magazine in Oxford called The Banner of Truth, printed about a 1,000 or something like that. People took some notice of it, partly because it had come from Oxford. They thought it was a strange place for this kind of literature to come from. <laughs> anyway, when Jack Cullum got involved, 
he was an answer to prayer, really, because in Oxford, we had realised, we took, we had looked into the prices of printing presses, absolutely beyond all reach. We'd come to conclusion, we'd been reading about the Countess of Huntingdon, Selina, in the 18th century. She was a great patron, as you know, to the evangelicals. Mm. And we thought, this is what we need now. We need someone to come forward. And strangely, we were looking in terms of a woman, I don't know why, <laughs> but the person was Jack Cullum. Jack Cullum was praying personally that God would lead him to something to use the rest of his life doing something valuable. And when he heard about the books and started to read them himself, he was captured. Mm-hmm. So together we formed this trust in 1957. And uh, yes, it, it's, it's, uh, it was amazing how God used the books and we thought people in England would read them, but with no idea that something larger than that was happening. Mm. So, yes, it took a long time to tell you a few things. Oh, it's wonderful things, golden things. And one of the yeah. first books published was a, a Body of Divinity by Thomas Watson. Well, yeah, Lloyd-Jones was very wise. He always anxious to keep balance. He said, don't get so hung up on just one thing, on not just the Puritans, on not just Whitfield, on not just Spurgeon, but spread the books out across the centuries. So the first book's out. One was a commentary on the Song of Solomon by George Burroughs. One was, as you say, Puritan Watson's Body of Divinity. Another was Select Sermons of George Whitfield. So on, on things like that, he was absolutely invaluable. Mm. Absolutely. Oh, wisdom, yeah. wisdom. And he encouraged books in a way that ministers I'd never seen done from the pulpit. And to my great thankfulness, <clears throat> I see that happening quite a lot in the United States and it's had a real impact because I don't know what the explanation is in England you don't hear it much from pulpits in England but even less in Scotland Mm. and that's partly I'm afraid because there's such a hue and cry that we must be up to date we can't be traditionalists we don't want we don't want traditions sadly many of the young people have identified traditions with a kind of deadness and formality. Mm-hmm. Well, in the States today, there are many ministers who in their preaching use church history to illustrate it, and then they mention the books. And just the other week, John MacArthur was on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and he takes at least five minutes in it to talk about Wilberforce mm. and slavery and how it was mm. broken by mm. the gospel. And, mm. and you can guarantee that he recommended a book mm-hmm. and hundreds of people would turn. And that's happening in the States. A lot of young people who read Scottish books and English books, and because they're Christians, they feel, these books are my heritage. Yes. Whereas sadly, young people in Britain too often think, these old books are mm. bygone era. Mm. So... Yeah, if we can reach ministers and encourage them, use history to illustrate from people's lives yes. reality. Yes. And it, has, it can have a wonderful impact on young Christians. That's right. And older Christians too. Mm-hmm. If you bend a story to fit your agenda, you, you, you lose a great deal. It's, it amuses me that when I read Pollock's biography of Wilberforce, he seems almost to be confused that Wilberforce can have been so fruitful because he was so disorganized, he was so spontaneous, yes. he was so much fun. Yeah. And then you find, but what does Jesus say brings forth fruit? And he says, if you abide in me, yes. you'll bear fruit. Yes. And everyone who knew Wilberforce said, 
yes. he was constantly humming a hymn of praise. Yes. He was, yes. he was, and his his journals have just been published. And uh, that's what MacArthur was talking about. Are yeah. they published in Britain or the States or both? I They've been done, uh, published by Evangelical Press, I believe. So oh, they've been yeah. published everywhere. Michael McMullen, who also published the, un, the previously unpublished sermons of uh, Edwards, has put right. these out. Good, uh, and uh, they are golden. But not least because you see yeah. this man when you're reading his journals, you think, "But that's what I write." And then you think, and he changed the world. Now, that's encouraging to a believer. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's provocative. Yes, yes. Now, of course, as well as publishing these books, you have, uh, you've written a great number of books. My, when I told my own father that I was going to be talking with you, he said, ah, the Puritan hope changed my life. Mm. An optimistic view yes. of what God is doing. It, just isn't, it isn't just going to go down the, get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. The Lord is working his purposes and they will bring yes. him glory. And uh, the, the, the books that you've written, The Puritan Hope, another friend said, reading your forgotten Spurgeon, not only told him about Spurgeon, but he said through the footnotes, I got to see other people who had said the same, similar things yes, yes. and opened up new worlds. Yes, footnotes can be important, can't Terribly. they? <laughs> but yeah. strikingly, of course, you find the, uh, uh, as, as, we give the, as I give our tours through the city of London, I'm frequently making the point that each one of the heroes had heroes. So, for example, Spurgeon yes, looked yes. up to Newton, who yes. looked up to Whitfield. And yes. you can see he's going back, Tyndale right. looking up to yes. Wycliffe and so on. Yes, yeah. I think that's... A, Especially important when we're young. Um, if we're not one-track minds when we're young, we're not, we're not going to get single-minded later. We're going to become broad. And so to have heroes that are the right heroes when you're young, not that they're going to govern everything you think or do, but they'll put you on a track. It's very important for young people. Oh, yes. My word. That's mm. powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember how it was that you first came to understand the gospel yourself? Oh, yes, indeed I do. Um, I was 17, my last year at school, and uh, was thinking of the Christian ministry as a calling. But I didn't tell people that, partly because I, I, was, I knew I was utterly unfit for it. That's one of the few things I did know. I didn't know I wasn't a Christian. I thought, I'm sure I thought I was. But that's because of, you know, the, the preaching that we heard, there was truth in it. But nobody, the congregation were never addressed as though some of you. I think it's a dangerous thing for ministers to assume that most of their hearers are already Christians. Most, most congregations is a real mixture, isn't it? Anyway, mm, mm. when I was 17, my wife heard of a young people's conference, holiday conference, at Hillenborough Hall in Kent. It was a house in the country that Tom Reese and some others had bought after the Second World War. And right through every summer, every week, they held a conference for young people. And it was greatly blessed and used. Every week there would have been upwards of 100 people, nearly always young people. So I went there in August of 1948. George Duncan was a preacher that week. He was preaching on the new birth. That week I knew that I wasn't a Christian and that this was a wonderful message. And so the next year I went again to Hildenborough and Tom, Tom Reese had a lot of vision for the churches and the need and if he could influence young men, he would. And so sometimes young men were asked, can you stay on for a bit and assist me at Hildenborough? And again, he was really assisting them. So people like 
Eric Alexander went through that process. And we, I say we because the last day I was there in August of 1949, I was due to go home first thing on a Saturday morning. My week was up, but he knew I hadn't had my calling up papers for the army and I was waiting for them. So Jean Reese, his wife, said to me, Ian, would you like to stay on for a bit? Would I like to stay on? I'd like to live there forever, sort of thing. <laughs> so, yes, I said. So, the next morning I began my duties. Uh, a new load of young people came in. Some came by rail, some by, came by coach. And so I was at the front door when a coach arrived full of young people. A young lady stepped off the coach. I offered to take her case, which I did, and showed her. And she, I knew where she would be sleeping and took her there. But when I got back to the front door, Jean Reese said to me, Ian, she said, well, I'm sure she thanked me, but she said, Ian, you look after the boys and we'll look after the, the girls. <laughs> so that was the first and last girl I had an opportunity of meeting in that way. <laughs> and we've been married now for 67 years. <laughs> oh, my word. I know, and I'd often thought, I mean, it wasn't planned. And at that point, Jean, my wife was also Jean, she was converted that week. But I wouldn't have even met her if I'd gone home the previous night. Mm. She had arrived at Hildenborough not wanting to be there. A Christian friend had enthused her to go. And she said to her, before she went, she said, I don't want to go and sing hymns and read Bible. And she came from an Anglican church, and she, she had a certain reverence for spiritual things. But anyway, she was converted that week. Mm-hmm. So we have been... We've been, we've been together for over 70 years and married for 67 years. Wonderful. wonderful. I'm distracting. I'm not doing what I should be doing on a podcast. <laughs> but it's, it's precious. Do you remember how you saw Christ through the preaching? Well, you know, John 3 awoke me. Hmm. But one of the texts that um, struck me powerfully was Galatians 2.20. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Well, I thought, that was a marvellous text. You know, I had done religious education at school and so on and written on justification by faith. hadn't a clue what any of the words meant. The idea that Christ is a, truly a living person mm. who we can know mm. and who lives with us. Mm. This was, to me, revolutionary. Mm. And it is the gospel, isn't it? We, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes. But God has to open our hearts. We, we, can, we can see the truth, we can read it, and it doesn't touch us until mm. the Lord opens Lydia's heart that she mm. attended to words spoken by Paul. Mm. And mm. I think it's striking that, uh, I, I, in fact, I heard you say, on a recording that it was when Whitfield was challenged about um, uh, Arminianism, he said, uh, I myself was given grace when I didn't know any uh, doctrines of Calvinism. He says, and so therefore I'm gracious to people who don't agree with me because yes. the Lord gave me the light of the gospel. Yes. And I'm seeing you're, you're quoting, you, when you first came to understand the gospel, you didn't come and you didn't understand it articulately. You saw Jesus, but then later you read of, uh, of people who've li- lived out the graciousness and have, sh- have illuminated it. I'm hearing you speak in terms of Edwards when he says uh, you can describe honey to someone 
You yes. can tell them it's sweet. You yeah. can tell them it's mild. But unless they've tasted it, I know. it's not real. There's no. as much as you can do for them. No. And you, you, so you, so the, the, your, your understanding of the gospel has, has flowered as you've read others who have understood it in different generations. Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah. are people who have been enduring friends, particularly from church history? Who have you en- enjoyed? Well, as you speak, I was thinking of another man. We all, as I said, did national service, and I landed up in the Cameroonians in Malaya, and we were fighting in the jungle, the terrorists that we were supposed to be fighting because it was, I often think COVID is like it. COVID's dangerous because nobody can see it. Mm. And it was jungle warfare... You didn't see anything. You were either fired at or you fired, but you saw nothing. It was all. So, yeah, that was an experience. The Covenanters, the Cameronians were a regiment formed from the Covenanters of Scotland, the only regiment in the army that until the Second World War, every man had to, when he was having a kit parade, he had to show his New Testament, that he got a New Testament. (laughs) The only regiment who didn't drink a, cu- a toast to the sovereign, whoever this co- Anyway, I'm, 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 <laughs> I, fin- I finished up. The, the, the military police in Singapore wanted another man sent down. So I was sent down from our company. And there was probably a providence in that because in the officer's mess, I shared a room with another young officer and... Just at the time I was moved down to Singapore to help in the military police, the regiment was moved up jungle, and he was dead within two months, shot through the heart uh, in the jungle. So solemn things like that happened. Um, I often think that my life was preserved. I heard actually once uh, we had, I don't, we didn't know how it worked, but we had our own intelligence working of course and it must have saved a lot of lives and I heard once that in the jungle my platoon that I was leading um, had actually walked through a terrorist ambush and nobody had fired who knows the reason why they didn't but uh, they may have thought that we looked too alert or whatever but but young officers were easily picked off in an ambush because they were the only people who weren't carrying rifles we carried a revolver but no rifle which I think, looking back, some of those things, I wonder if they were the best thing. However, I'm still not getting to the point. <laughs> the point is that in Singapore, that's why God sent me there, there was a dear lady called Dorothy Deer. She was a Canadian missionary, and she owned and ran a little bookshop in Singapore. And when I went to look at the books, she said, do you know this book? No, I didn't, but I think I may have heard of him, Robert Murray McChain. So she got me to buy a life of McShane and then a book of sermons of McShane. When I got out of the shop and down the street, I thought, I shouldn't really be buying two books on one person. I thought it really... So I went back and said, would you, would, you, would you think of taking one book back? Oh, no, she said. You must have them both, she said. And such was her spirit that I thought, well, I must. And they were those books were among life-changing books, The Life of Robert Murray McChain Mm -hmm. by Andrew Bonner. And the missionary, Miss Deer, she said, now when you get to London, I want you to go and see a Mr. Blatchley who has a book business in Kilburn. He'll really help you. So when I did get back, thankfully, to London, and my future wife, we were engaged then, 
and, and I, we went to see Mr. Blatchley. Well, it was, when I got to the address, 27 Lancefield Street in Kilburn, it's not there anymore now, I thought this is the wrong address because it was an ordinary little Victorian house. But it's what I'd got written down, so I rang the bell and a genial, portly man came to the door and I said with hesitation, Mr. Batchley? Oh, no, he said with a smile. He's gone up, he said. He's gone up. The man at the door was a Mr. Hobbs and became one of my dearest friends. The inside of the house was a mystery to people who never went in. The ground floor was packed with books, floor to ceiling. Hmm. Then the first floor up the staircase, it was a tailor's business. And they earned their living by tailoring. And they, they ministry in books was, was ministry. They sold them, but very cheap prices. Well, this Mr. Mr. Hobbs, F.J. Hobbs is a man who welcomed me, was a brethren Christian and a de- delightful man and knew books from the Puritans backwards. And he not only wanted me to get the best books, but he had a very good judgment of books. Mm-hmm. And looking back, it was remarkable that I had to go to Singapore to find out a bookshop in London because other people didn't seem to know of this. Uh, London's a big place, isn't mm-hmm. it? But it's all been bulldozed now. And mm-hmm. So I was getting these books I was reading too were making me see that the Presbyterian ministry in England was not something I could pursue. Mm-hmm. But the ministry was always my main concern. Mm. I don't think, I, I've, as you say, I've written a few books, but church history is secondary. But it's, it's secondary, it's a very valuable help. Mm. First thing is scripture, isn't mm. it? Mm. And a lot of modern church history, that's been the danger. What makes church history valuable is how near it is to scripture, mm. how true it is mm. to scripture. Yes. Does it illustrate scripture? Mm. Does it apply scripture? That's right. So a lot of modern history is not in that orbit, Mm -hmm. but the old historians knew how to handle that. Mm -hmm. And so our concern at Oxford and then at Westminster Chapel, and this is how Dr. Lloyd-Jones saw it, books are a great support ministry. And illustrated from history, somebody who lived in 1530, and then you're reading somebody in 1830, and lo and behold... They're talking the same language. They, right. they know the same things. That's right. And one of the remarkable evidences of the gospel, isn't it? Yes. And, and mm. strikingly also, if you look on the back of Bunyan's tomb in Bunhill Fields in, in London, on the back of his tomb is, think of Bunyan, the tinker, the, the sweaty worker, the, the worker in hot metals and smithy. On the back of his tomb it says, uh, this tomb was restored under the presidency of the Earl of Shaftesbury. And it's a, a man who, they will have had nothing in common in terms of their context, right, their, yeah. their abilities, their yeah, backgrounds. Yeah. But again, the gospel yeah. doesn't depend upon uh, on any no, sort of no, person. No. Yes, it's, I'm glad you mentioned Tyndale. I think he he's certainly very, very high up in my list of heroes, Tyndale. Mm. I read most of the three volumes on Tyndale in the Parker Society, which are now in two volumes, not been a bridge, but the second volume is thicker. But those volumes of Tyndale, I think, are just wonderful. Mm. Some of the English is old-fashioned, of course, but even old-fashioned English, he could write with great mm. force and power, mm. couldn't he? And, yes. and vigour, you would... I'd hate a modernised version of Tyndale. <laughs> um, some people have tried it, but, you know... No, it's... Um, 
Yes, what he what he enjoyed and the faith that God gave him. Mm, mm, mm. David Daniel in his great biography of Tyndale, and David Daniel being a professor of English, he has ability with language, which is unusual, I think, very uh, striking in that biography, brings out how in some modern translations we have, um, um, and Peter went out and cried hard. And that's yes. where you see the genius of Tyndale's. Yes, yes. Peter right. went out and yes. wept bitterly. Yes. I sometimes use the story of David Daniels. He was giving a lecture somewhere on Tyndale, and he didn't major so much on doctrine, but he was saying that, that Tyndale's doctrine, his belief, was Calvinistic. Well, at the end, he took questions, and one smart young man got up. Do you remember reading this? He got up and said, um, um, Professor Daniels, uh, you, you said he was Calvinist, and said, but um, that's rather strange because none of Calvin's books were printed at the time that Tyndale. Tyndale died in 1536, and Calvin's first book was... Uh, how could he have been a Calvinist? So, of course, uh, Daniel says, we don't call anything Calvinistic, Calvinistic because it comes from Calvin. Actually, it was the enemies of Calvin who put his name onto the doctrines of the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Superb, superb. It's wonderful. You, uh, is there, how do you tend to read um, uh, an Edwards, for example, or, or an Owen? Do you tend to, uh, do you tend to read a, uh, quickly, or do you tend to go through them slowly? Do you read daily? Among my faults would be that I tend to read too quickly. It is a fault. It's an advantage in some ways if you're just looking for something in a reference. But if you want to take a book in, better not to be so quick and remember as much as you can. And it's often, I think, been wisely said that it would be better for someone to really know a good author thoroughly or, or four or five good authors than to have read half a library of books and to be very knowledgeable. Now, it's actually imbibing it yourself, isn't it, that's... So on your question, I do think it's important when a book is recommended to someone to, to remember that God has his time for us to learn certain things. So I may enthuse all over Edward's sermons to a young person who's maybe not quite ready for them right. or who's needing something else. Right. So that I say to myself, if a book has been urged on me and I start it, and I don't feel I'm getting one. I don't have any compunction about putting it aside. Yes. Maybe ten years later I will value it, mm. and I have found that to be the case. Mm. I think Edward's book, Thoughts on Religious Affections, I couldn't make anything of it as a young Christian. Mm. But later on I thought it was just a wonderful book. Mm. Mm. So yes. in God's providence, books have to fit into the pattern of our our lives, don't yes. they? Yes, I remember Dr. Lloyd Jones making a very similar point, yeah. and I always wondered if he was talking about Brainerd because he mm. he, he said so don't don't recommend some books to some people, That's and he right. I thought yeah. he was probably talking about yes. you can read if you recommended Brainerd to the wrong person, it could be destructive, yes, rather yes. than constructive. Yes. That's it would, right. It would take them into a place of terrible introspection yes. and so on. Yes, it's very important to remember that, isn't it? Yeah, and with Brainers, you certainly shouldn't read more than a couple of pages at a time. It's such rich yeah. meat, but it's so provocative. Yeah. Writes a day off based on whether or not he met God. It's some sweet communion, some sweet communion. Yeah. Yes, that's golden. Yeah. And uh, what, what's new with you now? What are you up to now, Ian? Uh, so I have, in God's mercy, been able to finish 
two sizable volumes, which the title is England's Evangelicals from 1525 to 1700. So this is a great period of history, mm. uh, the formative period of evangelical history in Britain. Uh, it's, it's not a denominational study. It's hopefully meant to be spiritual, but it's church history. And it's not chapters of biography, but the biographies are woven in. Mm. And um, if somebody asks me, well, how long have you spent on it? Well, I started on it about 1962, 63, <laughs> and I've only just finished a year or two ago. Um, and that's not because I've been working on it, of course, all the time, but I've kept going back to it and building on it and, I hope, improving it. So I'm just thankful I live long enough to finish it because I've only, I think last year or something like that, that I finished it and Jonathan here in the office has got the, if I was, life was to end now, it's, it's, it's done. Mm. And I hope, I, I believe it will, it'll do great good because, mm. yeah, I believe that because the story is wonderful. And it's not because you wrote it. In fact, I think, I don't know how you find Ben, but if you've preached a sermon, and you happen, by some means or other, to be listening to it ten years later, you very quickly forget who's speaking. It's what's being said that's interesting you. It's like that with church history. I'm not interested in how I write something. It's what's being written that's... Uh, and wonderfully, English church history, it used to be written from a denominational standpoint, and that spoiled it in some ways. And then it was written by the more professional historians, and we owe a lot to them. But in the last 60, 70, 80 years, there have been more writers on the Puritans, and some of, some of them have done outstanding work, academic work, and in every way valuable. Mm. So, in a way, I'm popularizing what other people have written. Mm. But it's a wonderful field, and you could fill a library with books just on the Reformation. There are so many books. But which are the good ones and the best ones? Mm. And, but uh, as you say, there will be academics who will be almost listing facts and uh, <laughs> listing dates and yes. uh, occurrences, but they won't necessarily be pouring them through a filter which says, what does the Bible yes. say? Yes. And that's, of that's course, right. what you bring to the, to the table. Right. And, and, yeah. But that is a season during which we have extraordinary... Uh, Phenomena. We, we have uh, the, the, uh, the end of the King. We have the uh, we have Bloody Mary. We have we have the the Restoration. We have Cromwell. Good gracious! What a fascinating season you'll be writing about the Great uh, 1662. Extraordinary yes. moments. Yes. And so little has been written about these. I, I often tell the story when I'm going through the city of uh, of Watson being removed from his church, but him saying, "Well, him going." But we, and so. This great man who we still quote, yes. and yet we we see even Abraham died before he saw the promise, yes. but he died in faith. Yes, and so yes, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That's when they gave up everything, and that's where I fear as evangelicals, we've made big mistakes in the last century. Pragmatism is an ugly word, but it, it's doing what seems to be most likely to be successful. Well, in a way, that's what a Christian wants to do. But it's dangerous to be led by that. Mm -hmm. um, so often, it's men who superficially have seemed to have achieved nothing at the moment. They have done something that lasts through the centuries. And um, so, in our own lifetime, the ecumenical movement 
was all the rage in the yeah. 1960s. Everybody was reading about it, writing about it. And it was a cul-de-sac. It didn't lead anywhere, but it stole mm. a lot of time. Yes. And the idea was, if you can only unite more Christians, then the world will pay attention. You know, multiply the numbers and people will, especially there are a billion Roman Catholics in the world, if we can join up with the Roman Catholics, that's what's going to make an impression. It was all a delusion, mm. but it, was, it sounded impressive. The trouble was, if you're going to unite all sorts of different people, to maintain your unity, you've got to minimize a good deal of biblical belief. Yes. If you want a union with Anglo-Catholics, some of them may be real Christians, and we're thankful for that. But if you want a church union with people who believe in baptismal regeneration, you're going to have to tone it down, mm. not have a confession. That, mm. And a lot of that went on. Mm. Or doctrinal statements that are written ambiguously, deliberately, so they can cover both... And that was so futile, mm. while what was needed was clear-cut, simple, biblical doctrine. Mm. Yes, Believe indeed. with power and preach with unction. Mm. Striking. I was, yeah. I was listening recently to the non-believing historian, uh, Tom Holland. I was at an event yeah. put on by Open Doors, and he said, he was asked a question. It's striking to see a, a believer ask Tom Holland the question, what do you think? Because he was saying, he was talking about how Christianity has obviously blessed the world. I mean, as a historian, you can't say it doesn't. But uh, he was asked, what do you, what would sort of your advice or your perspective be on the ways forward and so on? He said, preach the, uh, preach the phenomenal elements in, in that he, and then he said, hearing of a, an ecumenical movement where some Buddhist sits down with a Christian and they make a document together to help people to give up smoking. He says, that's not going to help you. He said, preach the warts and all, preach angels, preach what the Bible actually says. Now, hearing a non-believer making that obvious logical <laughs> point, based uh, having seen the impact of Christianity, was very striking, because uh, I think we do see again and again those who have stood when others have buckled are the ones after whom you name your children. They are the ones who actually are the ones about whom the books yeah. get written, yeah. and they're the ones who seem to shine very brightly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, finally, this may sound um, uh, like a grand question, but what would your advice be? to people listening to this podcast. You've seen oh. a great deal, a great number, a great many things. Yeah. Well, you know, my immediate reaction to that sort of question is, I get letters sometimes with that sort of question, and I, often I have to say to them, look, we all need friends and counsellors and helpers, but it's, it's a, it, there's a hazardous element of danger in advising someone you don't know personally. How... You know, you can make, you can say general things. So, and I think that is true. Mm. <laughs> so, advice on on being a Christian. Well, that's the same everywhere, isn't it? We, some of us who are working as Christians and are living in that way, we mm. God requires us to be more diligent. We. We've got to give an account of our stewardship and we can give more time to Bible and that we, if, we, if we don't do that, woe to us. But the, but the normal Christian, 
the normal Christian should be seeking to make progress in the Christian life and be active in doing something to serve the Lord. Mm. You, and reading books isn't being active. That's taking in. But you have to take in to give out. Mm. And whether you're visiting old people's homes or teaching a Sunday school class or giving out tracts, whatever you're doing, we should do it. And we should do it with zeal and prayer. Mm. Mm. And, mm. and God... We can't be Christians in the world without confessing him before men. Mm. Mm. And who knows, just a word spoken by way of testimony can change somebody else's life. Amen. Perhaps we've, we've, we've become too slow to speak to others and about what Christ means. Mm. Mm. Also, implicitly in your earlier answer, there's this issue of, 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 of friends, there's this issue of the yes. local church. Yes. Our mutual friend Ken Brownell told me the sad story of having attended a funeral, um, I guess 18 months, two years ago, where no one knew the person who had died. And we find London is a very lonely place. Yes. You find uh, it's, yes. you're always surrounded by people and they're always strangers. Yes. And yeah. uh, you, you, the church is yeah. the... It's the antidote yes. to that nasty phenomenon in which uh, we find uh, yes. people who are, who are preoccupied with each other's welfare eternally and uh, the mutual love that the, the believers have one for another. And isn't that that proverb that says, when disaster comes, don't go to your brother far away, go to your neighbor. Oh, I'd forgotten nearby. that text. That's a very good text. Yes. Very important. And it's Because they're the people who actually know you at the moment. Mm. They just know your, the memories they have with you. Yeah. And uh, the Lord puts, the, puts us in families. That's what the local church does. And frankly, at the moment, we need to hear that because people are mm. talking about churches suffering because of covid and then when they start talking about the churches that are suffering you they you start thinking hang on are you talking about the church or are you talking about the sunday meeting yes because yes, the church yes, isn't yes. the sunday meeting the church is yeah. where the people come together right. and that needs to be recognized and if you read dear flavel or yes, one of, many right. of these that's others right. they recognize that very important do you, yeah. do you remember Dr. Lloyd-Jones talking about that much? Because, of course, the chapel will have been so enormous. But I hear that there were mm. friendships close. There was a core. Well, the membership was probably never never much more than 450, certainly not over 500. Mm -hmm. And the attendance, of course, would be much bigger than that. So there was, there was inevitably a core. And on Sundays, a lot of people spent the day at the church and cooked potatoes and... Had Bible classes in the afternoon, and it was a very full day. Uh -huh. But um, it was a downtown church, of course, and that's a disadvantage of it. It lacks something. Mm -hmm. I had to go to Australia to serve a church in Sydney before I really proper, properly realized what pastoral work means in a local church. My predecessor in this Sydney church was a man called Graham Miller. An outstanding Christian man. And uh, he had been a wonderful pastor. He not only visited people regularly, but after he had visited them, it would often occur to him that's a particular text that they perhaps need. And he'd write it out in his neat hand and send it to our slip of paper. Years later, I would find these slips of paper on people's mantelpieces and so on. It was suited exactly to their position. 
That's the kind of church that we need, isn't it? Mm, There's yes. a terrible lack of pastoral visitation. Right, right. The old Presbyterian system was that every elder has a district. In other words, you that again was to bring people together to make sure the elders knew. The elders as a whole would know everybody in the church, but a lot of that has withered really mm, now. Mm. Yes, Baxter, yeah. of course, that wonderful example of that. And buried in the city of London, amazingly enough. I love to tell his story when we go there. Yeah. Well, it's been a wonderful privilege to have this time sitting down with you, Ian. It is a time, is <laughs> Yes, we made it in time. But uh, we do thank you. I uh, thank you on behalf of so many who will be listening because you have, you have been a shepherd in the sense that you have fed. You have fed sheep all over the world. We've taken them to good pastures and said, here, try this. This will be good for you. And implicitly, you've set lines out and said, don't go outside of these. Don't go outside of these. So thank you for your time. And thank you on behalf of many who will be listening to this who would also like to thank you. Well, it's very kind of you to ask and to come here to Edinburgh on a cold winter's day (laughs) and to cheer us up and encourage us. And we are encouraged. It's so good to see you and to know about the work in London and the book you've just shown me on. I'm much encouraged in talk, talking to you about some of our friends, the work that's going on. I really do think that if we knew a half of what God is doing in the world, we would simply die for joy. We have no idea, have we, the Wonderful. extent of his work. The, <laughs> devil, a, the devil is constantly working to divide Christians. That's a wonderful perspective on which to end. Thank you. Mm, thank you very much indeed. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, And for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.